Hey, everyone. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Vodka Clock Podcast. I'm your host, Amber Love, and you can support the show and my work by going to patreon.com slash Amber Unmasked. And everything else is basically at amberunmasked.com. However, I am working on something new, but it's in progress and a little bit secret at the moment. Patreon backers know what it is, though. So you can also follow uh, the daily adventures that me and the cats go through on Instagram at Amber Unmasked. So today I'm speaking with a dear friend of mine, my sister, essentially, as far as I'm concerned, from gosh, over 20 years, like, I don't even remember over 20 years. Um, And just to make it even more confusing, our names are almost the same. So (laughs) Elizabeth and Burton Riley is here, we're going to talk about uh, the importance of stories, collecting stories, oral histories. And um, since, uh, you know, I write fiction, and it's kind of like semi- (laughs) semi-fiction. Um, uh, we're going to talk about uh, things like that, like how how legends get started or, or whatever, and what her area of concentration is. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Yes. And she's been, uh, she's moved about the country. So I actually did lose track of uh, where, where you were. So you said you're in Michigan now? Yes, I'm in Michigan. I've been in Michigan for the last couple of years. Okay. Um, and uh, for those who, who might be new to the show, I'm in New Jersey, and that's where uh, our adventures take place with um, Gus and Oliver, if you uh, have not read our stories, but I highly encourage you to do so. And um, so what, give, give me a little bit of your background, because obviously I... I was there in the trenches with you of struggling with crappy temp jobs just to do whatever it took to get through. And you eventually found your way into this high level of education and stuff and um, kudos. So how did you get there? What are you working on? Okay. All right. Yes. I have had a tremendous amount of crappy jobs. (laughs) I just just felt like throwing that out there. Um, In 2013, I decided to go for a higher degree. Actually, I'm going to really backtrack, which has more to do with what we're talking about. When you and I pretty much first knew each other. I was working on a master's degree in folklore at the Union Institute and University and slash Vermont College. At the time, they owned Vermont College, and I can't speak to that. I was there for about a year and a half, and due to a lot of things going on, I unfortunately had to drop out. And at the time, I was focusing on stories of fairies and little people and how that was universal. But what I did is I focused, I did a a compare and contrast between Cherokee stories of little people and the Irish stories of little people. So that's what I was working on pretty heavily. And life interceded, I had to leave. Fast forward to 2013, um, I wanted to complete my education. And I found a master's degree program at Plymouth State University in Plymouth, New Hampshire. And at the time, I was living in Albuquerque, 
that's a whole story in and of itself. But my husband and I, we keep moving to Albuquerque and then leaving. My mother's in Albuquerque anyway. So at the time I was there. So I applied for and I got accepted. And it was an interesting program because it's a master's degree in education, but the focus is heritage studies. So I thought, okay, I'm going to kind of revisit the folklore. So I got started in the program. We moved to New Hampshire and then something awesome to me happened. Several awesome things happened. And one of which was the very, very first class I, I took in person was an ethnography course that focused on oral history. And I started realizing that everything I love was called oral history. I didn't even know the word for it at the time. So I really, really enjoyed it. And I started learning a lot about family oral histories and and people and how they preserve knowledge through oral history. So while I was in that course, I actually did an extensive oral history study, uh, which I I published concerning um, a family friend who is Estonian, and she's an Estonian traditionalist, so she follows the old pre-Christian ways. So that kind of got me hooked. Another wonderful thing that happened to me is I wound up getting knee deep into Abenaki communities in New Hampshire. And I interned at the Mount Kearsarge Indian Museum. So I was working on oral history projects for the museum and for my own uh, degree. So those two got me really deep and excited. So also at the same, it seems like everything happened in 2013. At the exact same time, I started really getting involved in my own family genealogy. And through that, I ended up meeting a whole lot of really wonderful people online. And, and people who uh, self-identified as being indigenous or mixed indigenous and all the complexities therein. So I wound up having a lot of very deep conversations with people um, concerning self-identifying as being Native American and not looking that way, so to speak. So all of that kind of was always in the back of my mind. So I, I got my master's degree and moved back to Albuquerque. <laughs> and it was really interesting. Here I am with my master's degree. I come back to Albuquerque, the only job I found, administrative assistant. Assistant, yes, of course. Oh, like, can you put these uh, alphabet things in yeah. order? Oh, yeah, 100%. You- so it's kind of like, I always joked to people, you know, very biting humor that I have. I'm all like, you know what? I'm working on my PhD so I can become an office manager. <laughs> of course. I, so anyway, so I worked at University of New Mexico and that actually was really cool because it gave me an opportunity to take classes. So I applied for, got accepted in what's called, and this is a mouthful, Language Literacy and Social Cultural Studies, PhD program. My um, focus is more on the social cultural. It's it's an amazing program and it's really kind of spread for different interests. Like like half of my, well over half of my classmates are people from other countries who are in the program and getting their degree in ESL. So it's really fascinating and it, it goes off in different directions. So I got accepted in that program and I'm like, I want to focus on oral histories and indigenous studies. And in a nutshell, 
that's what I'm doing. So I moved to Michigan um, to work with a tribe here that is not federally recognized because what I'm really focusing also on is non-federally recognized tribal communities. How do they preserve their culture and language? How do they preserve all this without being federally recognized, with outsiders saying, well, you're not real or whatever. So um, I've actually been kind of doing some work with them, like genealogical, just just kind of like historical work for years and years and years now, kind of online. So I'm, I'm here to be kind of in the thick of it. So that is in a nutshell, my life. <laughs> how, how you got here. And how I, I got here. And I mean, stories uh, have obviously always been a love of yours. This I know because um, yeah. I can remember you were the one who told me to read the Da Vinci Code, which I did. And then you told me to read The Handmaid's Tale, which I did. So, I mean, <laughs> she's, she was just like shoving yeah. books in my face here. Um, oh, yeah. so, That's what I um, so it's it's fabulous. So stories have always been important. And as uh, you said, uh, it, earlier before we started that your, your mom's a writer and um, how, uh, you know, with, with making these connections all through your family and then through um, taking that to the outside world where you might be perceived as a foreigner, what's the difference in your experience as they're asking people to talk about their lives or oh, are wow. some people just too like, you know, you're super white and pink with red hair, like, you know, <laughs> don't, we don't want to talk to you or, or is it just like, yes, we want some, we want people to know here, here, let me unburden myself to you. It's really, that is a fantastic question. Number one, that's never happened to me. I've never had that happen in terms of my whiteness. Um, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm just saying that very specifically, I have to be blunt, specifically, all the people that I've interviewed and done oral history stories and all that other stuff with look more like me. So that has never been really an issue. And also to make a very long story short, I'm kind of an insider outsider. I share relatives with some of these communities. So, and, and, you know, on the, it, it's complicated. It, I mean, it's really like complicated because I enjoy being the outsider I really do I enjoy not being the story I, I you know there's like maybe a little journalist in me or something because I enjoy okay you tell your story I'm gonna help you out with that but I don't want to be the story and that's actually come up majorly because part of my dissertation is I have to talk about me and I hate that, <laughs> you know, but it is, it is very important because I have to talk about my own perspective on this topic. So I feel like said, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah that's, it that's is, interesting. but I'm like, I've always been like really weird about that, but that's a me thing because I am interested in other people's stories. I'm not interested in my story. <laughs> so, well, yeah, I, a lot of my, my more modern um, information has uh, yeah. been, been coming through Twitter for good or for bad. It really depends on who you Twitter. follow, um, yeah. you know, because algorithms are side, you know, yeah. it's, uh, you can still kind of figure out 
you know, do the, do a little experiment, make one account, follow one kind of, you know, one certain type of person and then make up a second account and follow different kinds of people and you'll oh, see yeah. the difference. Um, so uh, with the indigenous people that I've been following, um, different kinds of writers, um, people who are activists, uh, I, I mean, I don't know if that's their day job or, or what it is. Um, but I just see them online as activists. Mm -hmm. And um, as you said, do you get to choose your identity? Because we, not just we in the United States, but also Canada and probably elsewhere. um, uh, Some people are just learning about things that their governments did And they didn't know before, like, you know, right now, Ukraine is going through a genocide um, because of Putin and Russia. And for people like literally go like go look up the the definition of genocide and you will see that it doesn't just mean mass slaughter. It means taking away people's language, taking away their way of life, taking. So when the indigenous populations of North America have the right to, you know, they, of course they have, they have the right to maintain their ways because their languages, like you said, were uh, so many of them are lost there when they were, when they were pushed out of land and conglomerated, um, they, they had to just find themselves combining with other tribes that yeah. might not have had anything to do with them. So it's, yes. it's very weird. So they, and then there were the children being stolen. Um, yes. you're not a good enough parent. We're stealing your children. We're putting them in resident schools and they're never going to be allowed to speak the language. They're never going to be allowed to celebrate your holidays or, or however you do things. And they're going to dress like we do. And Mm -hmm. so that was Canada and the United States for sure. Um, Oh, yeah. So now, decades later, hundreds of years later, um, it's this empowering of people being allowed to self-identify and not worrying about, oh, it was my, you know, uh, one eighth of a yeah parental genealogy blood quantum thing and i'm allowed to call myself something so um a lot of people aren't finding these identities until later in life and they you know they have to i imagine not just have a lot of work to like self healing and self-work to get through but um you, you have to deal then with the, the people outside of you, like, you yeah. know, people filling out, filling out forms, like, um, yeah. you know, checking off that box. Hey, I, turns yeah. out I'm indigenous and, and don't honestly don't base everything on the ancestry tests because I mean, they're flooded with, with databases of, built off of white people. So the more diverse yeah. they get, the better their results will be. Yeah. But at, at the start, they, you know, everybody was coming back as like, you know, like if it, if an Indian person from, I mean, India, if they took the test, they were, you know, 
there's like, you know, billion of them. And it was coming back as just like general South Asia, you know? Yeah, like, no, you know, I agree. I agree. Yes. So, agree. um, yeah, yeah. So these, the blood quantum problems yeah. and the loss of heritage, um, can be, can be really seen as a struggle. And you'll, I mean, I see this on Twitter, as I was saying, mm-hmm. I, I see people speaking out and, um, like when, um, in, in the U S when we do the, uh, the electoral college and every once in a while you get to hear a different language. Yeah. And somebody said, ah, I got to hear my language said for the first time. And it was just <laughs> like, so beautiful. and it was just like, how amazing is that all because uh, a representative ran and won and, mm-hmm. and, you know, and now thankfully we have somebody responsible in charge of interior mm-hmm. <laughs> as opposed to yeah, an oil, oil magnet, you know, um, I know, no lie, no lie. You're, yeah. you're bringing up a whole lot of excellent points that I've been struggling with in my research because there are like two, there's more, a lot more than two sides to this, but there are like, for lack of a better term, there's two camps. And there are people who find out that, especially as adults, or even grow up with, oh, wow, you have indigenous blood, you have these indigenous things, and they and they embrace that, and they're part of the community and everything else. You also have people who exploit it like crazy, and say, oh, yeah, I'm just going to say I'm blah without any proof whatsoever. And so you have those kind of like two factions and it's brutal. I mean, I do not want to get involved in this controversy when I was writing for my exams, which is part of my dissertation. I'm literally saying this paper, my dissertation is not going to deal with who is what. I mean, in terms of that, I am not going to take a DNA test of the people I interview. They say they're indigenous. I'm going to take them at face value. I'm going to do the work. And Mm -hmm. I'm not there to judge, but there is backlash with both. There are communities in addition to people that are getting horrifically exploited by this and people trying to take that slot, you know, take that check mark and have, you know, uh, through affirmative action or or whatever, you know, what have you. And then there are, there's also the side of people saying, no, this is who I am. This is what my family is. And, you know, having a massive backlash. I mean, just like, Uh, is so huge that you know i fall off the floor that people you know eight ways from sunday go you know really i've proven this and still they've lost their jobs they've lost their careers they've lost everything especially in academia you just don't you know you can talk about the topic but you know so there there is a huge controversy and i'm trying to be to be honest with you as sensitive as humanly possible and go you know to both sides and say i don't want to deal with people who are exploiting the system slash I don't want to be the one making that judgment. I don't think I have the right, you know, Mm -hmm. personally, I don't think I have the right to come up to anybody and say, well, you know, you're not fill in the blank, you know? And, and so, but it leaves me in this kind of precarious position because my whole focus is you say you are fill in the blank. How does that make you feel? I mean, not in a psychology sort of way, but say, okay, you say you're indigenous. 
I'm not saying yay or nay, but you say you're indigenous. Okay, so do you speak the language? Do you want to learn the language? Has you, have you and your family tried to retain the culture? What is that like? You know, I'm asking questions more like that than, than challenging any identities. You know, mm-hmm. so it's like I'm knee deep in this huge controversy that I'm like hiding under the desk as I'm writing. <laughs> Can so you? I'm, well, can you explain um, the difference, like how, why would one tribe be recognized and one, you know, whereas other ones aren't? Because there's like over 800 or something in the well, United States. 500 and some odd. Something, no, wait a minute, I yeah. could be totally wrong. And I'm so sorry, I don't have that in front but, of me. Yeah, you, <laughs> this sounds like yeah. a silly thing to say, but I don't deal, I don't work with federally recognized tribes. It's, so I totally forget. Right. That so, is a complex answer, my friend. Okay, let okay. me see if I get dig into it a teeny tiny bit teeny tiny bit is my personal focus so this is kind of like my myopic lens my myopic lens is northeast woodlands period and like the tribe that i'm working with here in michigan that's part of it northeast woodlands consists of people who are either uruquoian or algonquian speaking for the most part i mean that's a big broad terminology these people have had contact with white people and have been you know, freaking exterminated and married into and you fill in the blank since the early 1600s. So it's a totally different narrative than, say, the Lakota or the Navajo. I mean, you know, you got that East Coast, you know, East Coast trauma. This is where people landed. (laughs) Exactly. Like, um, and so that type of intermarriage and that type of experiences, as it were, have been going around a heck of a lot longer. So it's a very kind of a different narrative, if that makes any sense. So to answer your question about federal recognition, all of that being said, I mean, the Wampanoag are federally recognized. Uh, Tribes in Connecticut are federally recognized. So I think, and again, I apologize. I am so not an expert. So you might want to edit this part out. But I think it has to do with treaties. Bottom line, it's treaties. Did these people sign in a treaty with the United States? Were they in that agreement? So... um, The tribe that I'm working with out here is kind of a good example because they actually stem from several tribes. It's more of like a confederacy, for lack of a better term, of different communities coming together. We're talking like since the 16, actually technically way before then. So uh, they were originally in Ontario, Canada, and they merged with people who were originally here in the uh, Midwest. And so how do I explain this? There was a lot of movement around and they had force left to go to Kansas, force left to go to Oklahoma. The people in Oklahoma are federally recognized. The people here and the people in Kansas are not. So it's kind of like the people who did the walk and signed the treaties and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, who went to Oklahoma are federally recognized. But the families that let's be honest, by that point, it probably married in, hid out or, or whatever, white coated by this point that stuck around, they did not sign a specific piece of paper. So their descendants are not fairly recognized. Again, these are some pretty broad statements I'm making. Yeah, no, I understand. Because I mean, like you said, you're, you know, you're seeking, seeking, you know, like, PhDs, you know, can't yeah. see in this. So this is not something we can cover in an hour. But yeah. um, but I was so, curious to know, like, what you know, 
why was, you know, why was it just like, no, you count, but you don't. And I didn't. I kind of want to also go way backwards into a totally different topic, but it's not, (laughs) which is in the 1980s, way backwards in the 1980s. I um, was involved with and friends with and a lot of different communities that uh, Wicca, Pagan, all this. And the narrative that I heard over and over and over again were people saying, well, I'm hereditary. I have, my family has brought this down through my family. These are the traditional pre-Christian traditions. And other people saying to them, oh, you're full of it. Oh, no way could that be possible. So that, in a very strange way, that's how it got me started. That in the 1980s made me wake up and go, wait a minute, you know, and people who deal with this backlash, people who hundreds of years have been Christianized and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know, have held on to this. How do they do it? And what does that mean? So I'm kind of many moons later here in 2022, getting my dissertation, strangely trying to answer that question. It's a very broad question. And of course, in my dissertation, all I'm going to do, I'm going to be interviewing like four people and say, okay, this is how these four people do it. You know, and I could talk in broad terms, these different communities. Um, Like I'm also going to be discussing the Abenaki people in New Hampshire and Vermont. I'm not going to be interviewing them, but there are certain communities that I go, hey, bam, these communities have preserved their language, preserved their culture. And, and, you know, these are kind of different examples. So, but I just wanted to give you an idea of what the heck got me into this in the first place. Yeah, no, you that's, know? That's, that, that's an interesting root origin story for, for you and how you got there. And, um, and like we, uh, you know, we, we both have in common is just our own names have like given us this, exactly. you know, inherent need to uh, just claim our own like name like just exactly everybody should be allowed yeah everybody should just be allowed to change their name like free of charge at some point like (laughs) give us give us like a token limit like give us you can change your name you know marriage divorce whatever and also when you hit 30 I mean like (laughs) I love that and that goes to identity that goes to this is who I am and how I choose to show myself to the world and I love what you just said ironically when I was divorced from my first marriage for various reasons my name change wasn't in there so I shelled out like hundreds of dollars I actually went to a court and said hi I want to change my last name to blah you know, and yeah. so it, it was really kind of interesting that you say that. It's like when you turn 30, I yeah. love that. And it was, <laughs> yeah. And, it, uh, uh, you know, I remember when you were doing that and um, like you wanted to take your mother's name and they wouldn't let you. Wasn't that it? Or they, it was, you no, wanted to take. It's not a matter of wouldn't let me, but you're actually pretty close because again, it, it I knew, I, obviously I knew I was going through a divorce. Um, and while I was going through a divorce, I was looking at various last names in my family tree. And mm-hmm. I was originally focused on some of the names from my mother's side of the family. So, you know, you're totally right. Yeah. And then I was looking at both sides of the tree. And then on my father's side, I had an ancestor named Elizabeth Riley. 
And it was really kind of interesting because I, I'm not even kidding you. I can't believe I'm just going to like publicize this story, but here it goes. I'm not even kidding you, but I glanced at the name. We're talking like, I, I didn't give it a second thought. And then I had a dream. That night I had a dream that I was on a bus in Albuquerque. And at the time I was living in New Mexico, Northern New Mexico. And it was the middle of the night. I got off the bus and I left my backpack. I left my purse basically on the bus. And I said out loud, oh my God, I've lost my identity. And there was this voice oh. that said to me, "Don't you're going to be okay because you're going to start your life over as a Riley. And I went, really? And I woke up and that's when I picked the name. That's when I went, okay, I'm starting my life over as a Riley. So, and again, when my husband and I, when we first got together and he was all like, I want to take your name. So we both like decided to take both of our names and, you know, right. and, and again, I decided to take his name, not legally, by the way, I have no paperwork. This is just in my head. <laughs> you know? So I kind of take his last name as part of my uh, middle name, but that that's how that happens. So it's like, I'm always kind of looking into that and going back to like paganism and these communities and these stories another thing because I grew up in Los Angeles so there I am in Los Angeles and by the way I'm saying this without any whatever you know but I'm in Los Angeles and I'm with a, a community of people and we're doing these you know ceremonies that are traditional to northern Europe so I'm in Los Angeles, it's 110 degrees. And I'm doing a ceremony that's appropriate when it's very much not that. And right. so, and I remember at this moment standing there thinking, wait a minute. <laughs> it's like <laughs> this feels inappropriate to me. And not, and I'm not judging or anything without judgment, but this feels inappropriate. This feels weird to me. And then I thought, well, what if I did a ceremony? of the indigenous people of California. I'm like, that definitely feels inappropriate to me. That's like not my thing either. So then I, it was like the wheels started turning literally at that moment. I remember standing there in the desert going, uh, this is interesting, you know, and the wheels started turning and it's been that, you know, so when I was studying about the fairies in, you know, in Ireland, the Cherokee and, and all over the place, to me, that was my in. That was my like, okay, this is freaking universal. You can find stories, little people, magical little people all over the planet. I'm going to use that topic to, you know, investigate how people hold on to the old ways. Because so many of those stories of the little people tie into the old ways you know, all over the world. And it's really amazing. And then I hit a massive roadblock, not only the, the roadblock of, you know, personal life, why I had to leave that school, but it was a roadblock whenever I asked a traditional person, tell me about the little people. They said, no, <laughs> like, oh, no, they said, no, you're allowed to use information from books, but you can't interview. No, no, no. This is private. This is sacred. I went, oh, boy and I respect that by the way I like wholeheartedly but I had to like dump the entire idea you know and every so often my mother gets up oh you should write about the little oh, okay not the way I want to and then I roll my but I totally respect it too and I honor that but that's why I stopped with that topic 
I'm like, okay, I don't want to get in trouble with spirits or people. Or anything. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so like all of a sudden there's, you know, you find know. your jewelry missing piece by piece. I know. This is what right. I'm saying to you, yeah. you know? So of course I decide on identity, which is far more of an explosive topic, <laughs> you know? You know, it, it really, is. it is, it is. And it's not, it it's not just a matter of um, like your subject where you're working with indigenous people. This is something that the trans community is battling. I think about that a lot. Yep. And, um, you know, black identities, they go through exactly. as well. And then of course you have just, um, you know, like one of my other writer friends is a Korean, but he's, he was adopted as baby. So, yeah. um, you know, it took him a, you know, a long time to, mm-hmm. to understand his own roots. And luckily he wasn't alone. He had two brothers, they're triplets and they, they were all adopted together. Um, but for, you know, there's a lot of Asian adoption in, exactly, um, in the U S um, for a while yeah. there, it was uh, always like Slavic areas. And yeah. then I don't know if it became like a cost thing, like white babies cost too much, but probably, um, oh I mean, okay. and yeah. then, you know, and, you know, it just seemed like adoption all changed to, um, be Asian, Asian babies or, um, or even worse, taking advantage of, exactly. no, of other point. people taking advantage of other people and saying, you know, if you go to their country and say, well, you know, I'll give you $20,000 for your baby and they'll live a great life, you know, and you know, you're a celebrity and suddenly you have eight adopted babies. And, um, and that's great that they do, they give them homes and they raise them and hopefully they get to keep some of their culture, but Mm -hmm. you don't, you don't know. Um, (laughs) you could have a creepy, uh, father like Woody Allen. I mean, you know, yeah, isn't no, disgusting? absolutely, yeah. <laughs> uh, absolutely, and it just add, you know, in really quick, my favorite book. <laughs> See, here I am giving you books again. This is the kind of, of course. my favorite book on my top, my topic. You know, in terms of mixed blood indigenous identity and learning about that, the best book I've ever read in my life is Scott Lyons' X Marks. X slash M-A-R-K-S. So Scott Lyons, just, I just love him. Now, um, he also wrote another book called The Word and the Text, but X Marks says everything that I'm trying to say, but he says it 10 times better. <laughs> I quote him a lot. And, and it is just, he really digs into it and digs into blood quantum and digs into being white coated and digs into culture and language and I it's just he he does a better job than I do but I just wanted to kind of mention Scott Lyons because I'm like you know what I'm going to take this opportunity because he's amazing so I love that book anyways did you ever read or watch Longmire um it's based on a series of novels so but I've watched it I haven't read it um, uh-huh. But I loved I loved the show a lot. Um, oh, cool, it, there's cool. some some of it got a little um, sidetracked with one character, but um, but it's interesting that I was talking to another friend and he said that he actually didn't like the show because he read the books. Um, but they because it's very much about um, it's in Wyoming, so it's really about um, tribal police versus you know local sheriff and yeah. corruption on both sides yeah um because you got like 
big white land developers and then you've got um you know indigenous casino owners and you know and they their own security and stuff like that so so there's a lot of corruption and of course drug problems going back and forth because it's a crime drama so um they did tackle things like domestic violence and um it was the show did get like seriously deep at some point and um but there was always um at least in the show i don't know about the books a little like a a tug of war between this character jacob nighthorse and um people who are quote unquote full full blood or whatever Um, because he became the spokesman um you know to represent the tribe like a tribal president or something and um so he was always the one that was forefront and center and the the one to uh, you know always go against whatever the white people would you know propose and Mm -hmm. um they did have a, a very similar case to uh, which is obviously not the first time, but something that's very recent in our lives and still present. Um, it wasn't COVID, but it was um, indigenous parents who didn't want white medicine to treat their yeah. child, even though it was something that was known and all it would take would be one injection and the child yeah. would have been fine. And they just didn't trust white medicine for good reason. Um so it it was this it was a really heartbreaking thing because you can understand yeah. like don't you want to save your child's life and it's like we don't trust you we never will stop you know just stop yeah. and um so again it was a situation where the kid was you know basically kidnapped to get in order to give him or her this shot um and i mean we like I said we go through that with COVID and sterilization like now we not only have like you know no more Roe versus Wade to back us up but um people have been talking about forced sterilization on certain populations and other people like this is brand new information they did not know this (laughs) um but there was an episode on on Longmire about the forced sterilization that that had been going on so, um, so it was strange to say that I learned a lot from a fictional crime drama, but, um, but I did. And, um, yeah, so, uh, it's just, it, it touches upon, you know, what you're saying about these tribes that are not recognized and that people have the right to self-identify and pay in their own personal lives. They might be getting a lot of pushback about this new information that they didn't have before, because, you know, just like, I mean, people will rag on Elizabeth Warren uh, from now until the end of time. I mean, it's in the history books. It's just going to be that way. But when you take something that your parents and grandparents tell you and you believe it, I mean, fuck, I believed in Santa Claus. Like, you know, I mean, I, I mean, it's like, your parents tell you these stories and you don't know that your parents are exaggerating. Like I can remember for how many years my father told me I caught the biggest fish in the lake and thought I really caught the biggest fish in the lake. Um, 
and it was like a six inch catfish. I mean, it was something stupid. Um, (laughs) (laughs) There's so much to unpack with that. I mean, and again, not an expert Um, from what I read about Elizabeth Warren, and I might not be an expert in this either. A couple of things. One, she did do a DNA test and yeah, she does have traces of native Americans. So yeah, she wasn't completely full of it. B, um when if i remember correctly when harvard hired her she's like oh yeah i was like well you know do you are you you know what race or whatever and she it seemed like a flipping yeah you know i have some ancestors that are cherokee they ran with it not her so and then she got the backlash from that so i again i could be wrong with that and that's just kind of, of what i've read but a lot of what you're saying you know rings a lot of truth and of course there could be exaggerations and everything else a lot of the cases, kind of the opposite. A lot of the cases, uh, most generations, you didn't talk about this. This was a shameful thing. This was like, no way. And, you know, some of the stuff that I've talked to, I mean, it was, you know, uh, both the tribe I worked with and other people I've interviewed, this was something that was whispered about. This is not like, oh, look at me, I'm a Cherokee princess. It's more of like, you know, don't talk about it. We don't want bad things to happen. I mean, it, it's, it was completely, so that's kind of a different generational thing. Like now it's like, oh, wow, it's so cool. Or, or in the sixties, it might've been considered cool with some subcultures, but for a huge amount of people, it was kind of the opposite, you know? I mean, it, right. was, it was like, no, we're white. And, you know, and if you look like you were white, that's the other thing is kind of doing genealogy. And I've seen census records where somebody i'm not even kidding somebody is white their whole family is white and like one of the census records 10 years later they're native 10 years after that they're white again and you know and it's like i give up so people (laughs) are very very strict about documentation well i want to have you know what rightfully so and that's cool but i have seen documents that were totally messed up you know that i just go yes and i just throw my hands up in the air at that point so it's weird and and there's also been like it's really kind of funny because there's also been this thing well you know nobody says that they have or or really pursues african blood descent you know they just focus on oh you know this cherokee princess or whatever there's a lot a lot a lot a lot a lot of truth to that too but i also have friends who are also focusing on you know having an uh, african descent from many years ago and trying to kind of unpack that with a genealogical tree too so i don't know i'm on a tangent no <laughs> but this is this is a conversation. This is what oh, we yeah, do. This is good because I, I feel like I have it I'm just like I don't know. Read, read. You know, Scott Lyons. You watch. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I eloquent I'll, I'll put it that way and again i'm kind of unpacking a lot of things that i'm trying to stay away from controversy at the same time so i'm like i feel like i'm dancing on the edge of a cliff you know like the fool card and in, in tarot mm-hmm. you know in a sense that that i want to talk about very specific i want to talk about meaning making and identity and and cultural and language preservation without having to go into the massive controversies and and the exploitation that definitely does happen to and this and that and who are you and everything else but it's it's been a challenge <laughs> so i just try to focus yeah. on my work honestly and focus on people that i interview so speaking of which you know my official interviews will not be occurring until i i pass my uh, proposal and then i have to do the irb and that that's the 
you know, institutional review board saying, okay, we love you. We think you're groovy. <laughs> they don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they give me permission to interview. So it's like, I've done a whole lot of interviewing for like, you know, classes and, and helping people out. But my official ones are not going to be until late fall, early uh, winter, knock on wood. I pass right. all that. So. Right. <sighs> and I'm sure, I'm sure COVID, um, you know, threw a monkey wrench into it did. Well. It did. And yet on the flip side, I mean, it was kind of a mixed bag on a very selfish note, by the way, this is me being totally selfish. On the one hand, it threw a monkey wrench because any kind of tribal get together or any get togethers is gone. But on the other hand, everybody's doing Zoom and, and that's helping me. Because, exactly. You know, I was able to kind of interview and, you know, not, not so much interview, but really work with people while I was still in New Mexico before I came out here. So in that right. sense, I'm like, well, uh, try to make lemons out of lemonade. Yeah. <laughs> Made things a little bit more accessible. Well, a lot more accessible in some cases, as long as the exactly. technology was there. Exactly. Um, but um, so uh, aside from Scott Lyons' nonfiction work, do you have... Oh, nonfiction. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry to interrupt. No, I, I hardly ever read fiction. I'm sorry. Go on. Yeah. So um, what, what I was going to ask was with, you know, obviously without um, outing anyone or, or violating anyone's trust or anything, is there a favorite story that somebody has told you? Um, wow. Like, you know, cause I know, I, I know, like you said, you, you're very emotional and, and empathetic and, and so, um, you know, just like me. So uh, if, if there was a story that stuck out and was just like, ah, grabbed you right in the heart. Wow. Um, I'm trying to give me a second to think about that. Um, what is the story? And it, it doesn't have to do with this. I mean, weirdly enough, and going back to the Estonian traditionalist, you oh, know, because way, I am actually is so inspired by her that it kind of led to a lot of this journey um, she had talked about, she, it, wow, interesting story. She's in her eighties and she was there. Um, she was in Estonia in World War II and she lived in the camps, the American camps and all that kind of goes with that and all the tragedies that kind of go with that. And her mother was a traditionalist and her mother's father was a traditionalist. And, you know, it was little tiny things like you uh, cut down a tree, you plant three. And I mean, just little things like that and giving thanks all the time and all of these very strong traditional ways and keeping that language. I mean, Estonia, it's not like it's a lost language for, for Pete's sake, but in, in wartime, we're talking like in freaking wartime and holding on to those traditions. And she and her family ended up moving to the United States um, when she was little in the, uh, I believe, 1940s. So, but it was those little traditions, again, um, giving thanks and, and replanting a tree at, and having the, the birch tree as unbelievably sacred to them. You know, and thank God birch grows incredibly well, but using the birch oils and saunas, which are essentially sweat lodges and, you know, it just kind of, you know, holding on to that. And that, that really got to me. I mean, that, that passing down of information and that tradition literally during a war, 
and during like when the Russians and the and the Germans, all these people were just decimating their culture, you know, to be able to hold on to that, those pieces and be able to, to be blunt, pass them down. That, you know, in a very strange way, and it's weird that, you know, I'm using this as the example, but that, but that's also kind of inspired my work and saying, hey, how are these communities doing it? You know? Yeah. No, so, I think it's brilliant. I mean, you know, because it's probably somewhere in the back of your brain and not even being uh, aware of it but we all you know we all grew up uh, I think um, at least in uh, in our age of having to read Anne Frank's diary yeah exactly you know like we there were certain things that you know we just had to consume and the fact that there's just like people that exist who will always grasp onto any conspiracy no matter how hurtful yeah, no uh, saying saying things didn't happen or they weren't that bad or that number is exaggerated. I know. nothing I know. like that. We're I mean, watching it right now. I mean, we're watching. Yeah, we're. It's 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 horrible. Um, I know. I can remember specifically. I don't remember what grade, but I think it was tenth grade, being in high school history class, and you know, again talking about World War Two, and and I said something like, oh. God, we would never do something like that. Who even thinks of this? And the teacher just looked at me and went, but we did. We and I was did. like, <laughs> and I was like, I was like, what now? You know, know. Uh, like know. what, what? And that's when I heard about the internment camps and, um, you know, and let me just say like, you're not stupid if you weren't taught something. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. You just, the people giving you information, just either you didn't retain it or it's, you, they were given wrong yeah. information. I can remember uh, one of my professors who was, you know, very old, completely confusing the Axis and Ally powers. And oh, I was just not good. I'm sorry I was laugh. just like, I was just like, which one do I put down on the exam? Like, which, you know, it's like... <laughs> Oh, I'm like, oh, that's it, pretty bad. Yeah, really like just bad. the terminology alone. So I, I was just like, oh no, what am I going to do on this exam? Um, it's never too late to learn something, even if Amen. it's something shitty about your own your own people. Like you know, I know. I mean, hey, I am literally the representative of the Karens. I'm the white middle aged yeah. woman we did nothing but fuck up for, you know, for decades Um, and get a lot of credit, you know, when black women do a lot of the work. So, um, you know, especially politically speaking, I I mean, it's just, um, there's just so much. And, and if, you know, uh, there's, I haven't watched it yet, but I just heard about a Netflix documentary called like black and missing, I think. Yeah. That's the name. I think um, so. And I, so I just heard about it listening to my favorite murder podcast. What they bring up is, you know, oh, when a white female subject is yeah. kidnapped or disappears or murdered, it's a big thing. And it becomes like historical, like the Madeline McCann thing. Oh, my God. They're still airing things about Madeline McCann and John Ramsey. John, I, I mean, know. it's like, I know. Um, I know. And yet uh, this happens to little girls of color and boys I know, and trans I know. kids all the time. And all the time. So it's just a matter of who gets the headline and why. Um, and exactly. I, and I realize the resources are different 
now. So uh, thank thankful for these organizations who who can do that. And you can maybe get your own stuff out there on the social networks to to help find missing people or get answers. And there's a whole, you know, online community of people who try to solve cold cases through I know and podcasts. I know. And there's also missing and murdered indigenous women, indigenous women, right? Yeah. Of, of Canada and the United States, which is just the most disturbing amount of, of these women and girls and a lot of times men and boys that poof. And you're absolutely right. I mean, my goal, like my life goal, one of my life goals is to try to be the best ally I can be, you know, and because of my deep, um, passionate love of oral history my goal is also to kind of put the best light on like like help people tell their stories you know in a very positive very empowering way you know I'm hoping that with my dissertation and my work and et cetera et cetera that it'll empower people I want people to feel good you know it's kind of like there's a part of me and I've read this a lot about journalists and oral historians are kind of like kissing cousins you know right, like right. a journalist a journalist job is to get to the truth and i think i love journalism i think it's amazing and oral history is a little bit more like what is it their truth <laughs> you know and, and there are some definite you know differences and similarities but you know that kind of ties into that it's like i want to be the best ally i could be and my way of trying to do that is to uh, do oral history interviews to write and, and, you know, that sort of thing. So I think that's important. I think preserving what we can is going to be important. And you, and you never uh, know because just the, the way of the earth or the planet and, you know, records get destroyed. I mean, it's destroyed. It's, I can't remember. Somebody was just talking about how there was something, um, some sacred site that um, was like uncovered uh, in, in, I want to say either England or Ireland um, uh, that, you know, the only reason it was found is because I think people were going to like develop or something yeah that a lot of times that happens yeah <laughs> you know at least over here when that happens construction has to halt so yeah. um I don't I can't speak for other places but at least um it, here um again something I learned from watching murder she wrote you know even <laughs> if she wrote, I love even it. if I love it's it. a hoax even if it's a hoax even if you take and Parks and Rec did a satire on this too they took uh you know they planted artifacts Pawnee artifacts that was uh you know because Parks and Rec that's what they did was they they held the mirror up so um but yeah murder she wrote like there's a architecture dig condos going up and then they find a skeleton and it's like whoa what's the historical significance of the skeleton and you know (laughs) so there you go NAGPRA yeah absolutely yeah so it's uh it's amazing that we can learn certain things that actually are not complete bullshit <laughs> yeah that's always a good thing absolutely that uh, you crack me out no absolutely that's very well put <laughs> uh, well I mean and you can even learn from you know futuristic stuff I'm you know going on to like oh, yeah. Star Trek like I mean I remember talking about Star Trek and yeah. uh, 
I'm such you know, a geek. So now you're talking my language. Yeah. <laughs> well, next I generation mean, boy is your geek, you know. But, yeah. 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 But that's what I mean. You know, you come across, you know, everything, everything was, was put in as a metaphor, you know, and it is And going back to that and going back to storytelling. I mean, actual storytelling. I mean, I'm a, I I consider myself like a story collector. You know, I'm a terrible storyteller. I've been, I've been told that I can't tell a joke because, you know, I I don't do the punchline right or whatever, but you know, you have these like universal troops and, and a lot of times, you know, Star Trek and a weird example for me, is the Terminator and to me the Terminator is a huge example I mean you either get it or you know and I mm-hmm. and, and a lot like you know and the Terminator is based on a lot of old stories and it's like you take this sci-fi Arnold Schwarzenegger and everything else but you also have this deeper narrative of of the the sun lover goddess whole thing about you know she gives she meets you know essentially the god they, he gets her pregnant she has the baby and that baby grows up he becomes the god i mean there's a lot of of depth dude i'm a big fan you know of terminator yeah, yeah. that right. that has that like underlining mythology to it i'm getting all joseph campbell on you now but but you that know it's awesome yeah, yeah, you do learn a lot from a lot of these stories, a lot of these, and they be, kind of become the, well, you know, going back to Next Generation, it was really powerful that there was uh, Christie's many, many years ago, Christie's in, I think, England or something, did this auction of items from uh, Next Generation. It was this massive thing. And one guy, all he said was, I bought the flute and I started crying. And then he's like, yeah, everybody I told this to cried because it, uh, it tapped into this beautiful episode called the inner light where Picard lived this totally different life. He had a wife, he had children, he had grandchildren and lived this entire existence. Yeah. You know, and, and at the very, very end of this existence, they're like, yeah, you, we want you to tell our story. So you lived our story and he, and they, he had this flute throughout this entire existence so I mean I'm like falling eyes like oh yeah the flute the flute you know because it was like Mm -hmm. to me that was the symbol symbolic representation of living this mythology so but that's my little story but it's (laughs) yeah I mean but but the idea of passing down stories is um it's 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 even written into as like you know as the bard like um 300 like I don't know crap of of the history of 300 but the Spartans (laughs) the the Spartans and uh you know (laughs) uh, you know um all that Um, (laughs) so it's yeah so it was one of those things where like one this one guy survived and he's like what am I supposed to do and he's like you're supposed to walk back and tell people what what just happened yeah that's true that's true that's true and and so and then the same things i think happened in lord of the rings didn't like faramir like have to didn't faramir get sent back to share the stories Mm -hmm. and so um so there will always be somebody sent back to share the stories so i think it's exactly it's cool if you feel that passion and yeah absolutely yeah (sighs) but um so is there is there any Thing that you want to share plug your mom's book if you want oh <laughs> really I, yeah um, talk. okay my mother is judy wilmore 
you can put a little hashtag. Anyways, <laughs> although she's no longer on Twitter, I try to, it's a long story. She's a little older. Uh, so she's all like, right. Twitter's what? And I'm like, that's my <laughs> Okay. My mother wrote an absolutely brilliant novel called The Menagerie. And it is set in, in Versailles. And it is with the, the, the Sun King, Louis. And it is a murder mystery. It's about the poison. Uh, you have to read it, honey. It is about, <laughs> it's about the, the poisons that went on. And it, it, it's filled with intrigue. And it's just wonderfully written. So what it is, it's really kind of neat. So she wrote this book. And now she's doing book two. Like the first book. She was just knee deep. I mean, it took her well over 10 years to write this book because she did a tremendous amount of scholarly research and she speaks French. So, I mean, she's reading French documents in French and doing all the, I mean, just an incredible amount of work. So it is historical fiction. In, in the truest sense of the word. And right now she's writing book two where she's getting kind of away from this quote unquote historical fiction. And she's also uh, bringing in a woman who is, I believe we, we she <laughs> uh, decided is Abenaki, either Micmac or Abenaki because a lot of kind of going back to my own research in the 1600s, children um, of these communities, these native children of these communities in Quebec would become Christianized. And a lot of them were sent to France to become educated and sent back. And there are stories and legends, I haven't proved or disproved, I'm not a historian. There are stories and legends that when they were sent back, they are shown up as white. They're shown up as French in genealogical records. So, because they lost their name completely. But anyhow, so my mother is writing about one such young lady who was in Versailles. And she, and so there's a, this is all fiction, not so much historical. I don't know who, could, who knows it could be, but she's friends with one of my mother's major characters from the first book, a young lady by the name of Sylvie. And some of the first book goes into Sylvie's story on how she's kind of watching this corruption and all this other stuff. And her second book that she's writing is about uh, tapestries, actually, and the people who make the tapestries. And there's some kind of poison and murder. I know not what, because I haven't read it yet. <laughs> So, but her first right. book, um, you can get it on Amazon, Google Judy Wilmore and um, Amazon. And I believe her local, it's really cool. Um, uh, a local bookstore in Albuquerque sells it. I forgot the name. Um, okay. uh, her publisher sells it. I forgot their name. <laughs> but it's if okay. I can send you links to all that. No, she's a really, really good writer and she happens to be an amazing editor and she's saved my butt from the fire. I got to be honest through my graduate studies, she has really helped edit my papers. I mean, I owe her a debt of gratitude for that. So that's so cool. So that is, she helped me buy my iPad, which may sound like an odd thing to say, but I'm actually thinking about writing an article about my iPad because as um, an oral historian and a PhD student, I'm learning about all these new tricks and tips by using my iPad to do all this stuff that I'm thinking about writing about that. So my iPad is, is, it's really, cause right now I've been working on a project where I have tons of notebooks that I need in text and I've been working on that. And that's what I've been doing through my iPad and my iMac and through a program that 
for some reason, I totally forgot the name of, for $12.99, I'm able to convert the handwriting into text and the text and clean it up because a lot of these notebooks I'm using as data points to my work. So I can be able to literally run searches of different keywords and how often those keywords show up. So I've been thinking about writing about that, actually, little technology thing. So I think that's great. I mean, I, I, I mean, I use um, Duolingo to do little yes. lessons every day. So I do little. Me too. Yep. So I'm I mainly doing uh, French and Spanish, um, French yeah. I did take in high school. So it looks like I'm like skyrocketing through it. And it's like, well, it's really um, a lot of like buried somewhere in those gray cells type yes. stuff. <laughs> um, Spanish is pretty is pretty new. Um, but I also activated just to tr- try to see what it was like the Haitian Creole part. And that's new. It's in beta. So they don't have all of the same, the same things, but it's interesting how much more Haitian Creole makes sense as a language than actual formal French. Um, And they do have, they do have one native American language in there, but I can't remember off the top of my head, which one. I think they do. Absolutely. And I got to look into that, but right now I'm just so knee deep, but I did use Duolingo a couple of years ago. I was trying to learn French and I want to get back into that. It's just, I've been too busy because a lot of my research is Quebec French records. I mean, like I'm looking at all these records and I'm saying, Oi, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's what, and so, and it was another writer who told me that like Quebecois or Quebecois, however you say it, Quebecois. is is not yeah. is not like French. Is not like like a person they because they read it in like a comic or something, and they read the you know somebody put like a French translation, and they're just like that's not what somebody in Canada would say. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it is French, but it's kind of like saying. Like, yeah, yeah, it is different. I mean, it's like in northern New Mexico, the the Spanish that they speak yes. is different than in Spain. You know, yeah. I mean, it's still Spanish, it's still French, but it is a very different different. And you're absolutely right because in Duolingo, if I remember, you can take Quebecois French or or French from France. You know, yes. it's either, it's one of those programs. So I'm like, yeah. So yeah. Um, I actually I think it's the other one, but. I don't remember. Rosetta have, or maybe who knows? Rosetta. I think that is it. Anyway, um, I got to eat lunch. My friend. Yes. So thank you so much. Thank you so much You're for, for, so for much. talking to us today. Um, so um, I will fun. let you go. Thank you guys for listening. You can um, check out the show notes and everything at amberunmasked.com. Don't forget that you can also um, support my work anyway at patreon.com slash amberunmasked. All right. All right.